Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Coming up, and fascinating discussion on genealogy and family history. We have some uh, very interesting stories from some people who are uh, getting into their family history. Uh, of course, family history is the uh, second most popular hobby now in the United States, and uh, probably even more popular in Utah. First, I wanted to finish up a discussion or the continuing discussion on the vegan lifestyle. We had a program on Thursday, and the discussion has continued on Facebook and on email. I wanted to get you caught up with that. Uh, you'll recall that Vivian Baji uh, on our Facebook page on Thursday said that when I'm offered food, I say no thank you. She's a vegan. Uh, to anything with animal products in it. The problem I find is when I have to ask what is in the food and when specific things are listed, I say no. If anyone asks me why I don't want it, um, I tell them that I'm vegan. And she goes on to say that uh, sometimes brings up some uncomfortable moments. Erin Brewer responds to her. She says, Vivian, I've had the same experience. I try to be very low-key, as you said, but it seems like there are some people who ask me to justify my choice only to jump on me for attacking them. As uh, Blair Larson mentioned in the program, it has gotten a lot better. When I was young, people would be very mean and act like I was un-American or something for not eating meat, but it now seems like people are much more accepting, though people still suggest I pick meat off pizza if I'm at a gathering. The only pizza is pepperoni. Uh, there's one thing I've learned from this program is don't tell a vegan or vegetarian to just pick stuff off the <laughs> off their pizza or such. <laughs> uh, several of the uh, people on the program expressed uh, um, distaste for that. Uh, Vivian Baji responds also to uh, Catherine Sylvester. Her question, how do you get your B12? If you're a vegan, and Vivian Baji says, Catherine, a combination of fortified nutritional yeast and non-dairy supplements. I'm glad things are changing, Aaron. Joseph Anderson. Uh, who works down at the Logan Library, says, I'm a recent vegetarian. Having made the change just last August, I've had no problems. We had one guest on the program who had a problem uh, transitioning. She's going to try again. Sean Bliss writes in, I've been a vegetarian for 15 years. I can't imagine going back to eating meat, but I'm pretty laid back about others' choices. I assume that everyone I meet is a meat eater, and I figure if I want my choice to be respected, I need to respect theirs. I went vegetarian initially uh, for uh, environmental reasons, including food scarcity issues, but also motivated by ethical concerns as well. Most of the veggies I know are pretty mellow and likable folks, uh, not the strident and angry evangelists that we sometimes imagine. So thank you for all of those comments on our Facebook page. You can go and see those. And uh, we have uh, this from uh, Mary Walker, Marianne Walker-Hubble on our Facebook page. Uh, she says, part one of uh, a six-part debate, um, and she gives a YouTube uh, post, which you can see on our Facebook page. I'm not vegetarian and agree with Aaron that less meat is better. We should be buying meat only from farms where animals are raised in a humane way. Finally, I'll just give you part of a long email, which we'll put up on our website from Carla Kelly. She says, I'm not vegetarian, but often prepare vegetarian dishes because of the richness of taste and health benefits for my family. Vegetables and rich tastes? Yes. If you know a bit about the principles of umami, or umami taste, and she goes on to explain this, that you can have good taste and have vegetarian and vegan dishes as well. We'll put this up on our Facebook page. Uh, let's hear a, a clip from uh, just a couple of weeks ago. An event was held at the, uh, down at the Logan Tabernacle on the Family History. My name is Edgar Lewandowski. Well, I like to have something for the grandchildren to, to have a record of their ancestors. 
and uh, in as much as I'm the first one here in this country, so if they look back, they wouldn't have any record of the past. I grew up during World War II in Germany, and it was a miserable time, and I want to get away from it. So I intend to get into genealogy a little bit, and so I thought this tonight might help a little bit to get acquainted. It was Edgar uh, Lewandowski who came to the U.S. in 1959. <clears throat> He's interested in beginning genealogy work. He was an attendee at the Who Do You Think You Are event at the Logan Tabernacle a couple of weeks ago. And they're basing, of course, that title on the popular uh, television program where they take celebrities and, and take them back into their genealogy. Uh, because the LDS Church and Ancestry.com share their record libraries with the public and each other, Utah's a mecca for people interested in family history. Genealogy has become the second most popular hobby in the United States. I was going to look up the most popular hobby. I didn't do that. Maybe you could uh, enlighten me by calling in. Uh, but it's the second most popular hobby in the United States. We're going to hear some family history journeys on today's program, including a cowboy who found out he's an Indian, a grandson who's discovering his Japanese heritage while sorting through his grandfather's belongings following his recent passing, and a great-granddaughter who's come to admire the courage, resilience, and strength of the women in her family, which immigrated from Yugoslavia to work in the Tintic Mining District. And we'd love to hear your story, whether it's research you've already done or why you want to start tracing your family history. You can reach us at 1-800-826-1495 or join us at upraxis at gmail.com. We Welcome in Michelle Bogdan, who is director of the Access and Diversity Center at Utah State University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom, for having me. And uh, we also welcome in Travis Thurston, instructional designer at Utah State University in the, uh, what is it, the city center? Yep, exactly. It used to be the fact center. Yeah, now it's the Center for Innovative Design and Instruction. All right. And uh, each of you responded to uh, an inquiry from the uh, Public Insight Network. This is a wonderful new um, Gathering Place, uh, put out by uh, American Public Media, where media outlets like ourselves can uh, just put out an inquiry and, and uh, get to feedback from, um, I guess, experts, so-called experts, regular people uh, like yourselves who are interested in whatever subject we put out. And this time we put out a, an inquiry on family history. got some very interesting responses. Some of those others we'll get to as well. Uh, so let me start with you, uh, Travis. What, why did you get into tracing your family's roots? How did, how did you get into it? Um. I would probably say that uh, I gained the appreciation for family history from my father, uh, but it really wasn't until after I was married uh, when one of my grandfathers passed away that it really kind of sparked me to, to start researching my family and see where I came from. Uh, so how old were you then? Oh, uh, I was about ago? 22 years old. Okay. Um, and what, what did you do? Where did you – how did you start? Well, luckily, uh, my grandfather had compiled his own autobiography, and my wife and I went through, and through each section of his autobiography, we went to his house, and with the help of my grandma, we found pictures and documentation uh, backing up everything that he was talking about, showing pictures of him uh, earning awards and things like that, and we compiled it into a, a new book. And in that new book, we also included memories from uh, his posterity. Interesting. What did you? Uh, what are some interesting things you picked up as you proceeded with that project? Um, something that I thought was really interesting was seeing his perspective on on his father. Uh, he passed away uh, when he was about two or three years old, 
And that's something I never really considered about my grandfather, you know, that he grew up with just his mom and his brother. And they really relied on their family uh, to raise them. Interesting. Yeah. Did you, uh, there any, did it, was there any shift in the way you saw yourself through the stories that you found from your ancestors? I know sometimes we, you know, stories are very powerful and you, you learn things about your ancestors and that, that can't help but have an effect on you. Yeah, absolutely. When you see uh, your ancestors, uh, the struggles that they went through, you see that they were human as well and uh, how they overcame uh, their trials in their lives. I, I think it really makes you stronger and makes you want to to persevere and, and and do everything you can to to live your life the way you should. Hmm. We turn to Michelle Bogdan. How did you get into tracing your family's roots? Well, the first time I had heard some of my family history was basically at my father's funeral. Um, when people gather for funerals, we tend to start talking about our loved ones and loved ones who have passed, um, have passed besides the person that has also passed. And at the time, because of the circumstances surrounding my father's passing were so painful, I listened, but I was 23 years old, and I just really wanted to just kind of keep moving and, and keep moving forward and doing, you know, going forward with my life and whatnot. So um, it wouldn't be until about 20 years later when I was considering a couple of different graduate programs and took a class from Dr. Patricia Gant, um, a folklore seminar. In this particular class, um, we were doing oral histories. And I decided that I wanted to interview one of my aunts and collect her oral history, but also a lot of the stories that I had been privy to at 23, but had kind of locked away, but kind of now was more interested in knowing more about it. And so I didn't necessarily go down the, um, the genealogy route or the Ancestry.com route, although I did have some of that information. A lot of my... Um, family history that I learned about came through a lot of family stories and oral histories that I've collected, not only from my aunt, but other family members as mm. well. So it wouldn't have been until that one final class project for Dr. Gant's class and the folklore seminar that I really found out some of the amazing things that you can learn from oral histories, but also some of the challenges and some of the painful things that can come out from those kinds of interviews. Mm. You mentioned painful circumstances. Your your dad committed suicide. Yes, he did. Right? So that you know, extra painful as you gather for for that funeral. Absolutely. And and then I, you, you told me that you started discovering something that suicide yeah. sort of runs in your family. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting to be at a funeral talking about your your parents' suicide and then finding out that your great grandmother and two aunts and there's been some ha half siblings and uh, not my half siblings but my father's um, half siblings and other members of the family have committed suicide and of course the circumstances around them are also very tragic as with suicide and um, but when you seek that information in the form of a story you know, we know that stories can change and they can evolve, and we don't always know that they're you know, they're completely accurate. So I did the very best that I could to back up those stories with a lot of research in terms of historical times, the death registries that you you have during that period of time as well, all the way back to Ellis Island. Mm. So and we'll talk about this a little further on, but but specifically when you when you find out some painful things, mm. suicide, running in your family, and such. Yeah. What do you do with that? How does that affect you? Well, one of the things that um, 
at first, you know, there's always that, oh, my gosh, I come from a long line of people who either um, like to take their own lives. Um, there's also violence that um, stories came out with um, great aunts, great uncles. You know, there's a, a story about um, a great aunt that was married to a man, <clears throat> excuse me, married to a man that was very violent. And one uncle decided, well, we're going to go over there and take care of the situation and hit this man over the top of the head with a cast iron skillet and killed him. And the decision was made, well, let's let the younger brother take the rap for it because the, the consequences won't be as intense. So the family gets together, decides to blame it on another sibling, a younger boy, who ends up then going to reform school. And then that sets up a whole history of tragic circumstances just from that one particular Excuse me, event. Wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> so I'm, that's I don't amazing. mean to laugh at it, but it's yeah. it's it's but pretty pretty yeah. intense. And then yeah. then those kind of memories and those feelings evolve into okay. I can look at it like, oh my gosh, I have a family that has a pretty interesting, somewhat eccentric history, or I can choose to look at it as I come from a stock of people who have persevered. And then I started to really focus on the women in my family um, because so many of them were the victims of domestic violence or um, victims of circumstances. Um, The one woman in my family that I've really concentrated on is my great-grandmother. Her name was Annie Dracolich Bogdanovich. And she was a mail-order bride. She came to um, Eureka at the age of 14 to marry my great-grandfather, who was 44 at the time, and had 11 children um, by the time she was 30. Um, during that period of time, my grandfather was the um, also brought over the family recipe. I put that in air quotes. Um, that um, they would make to sell to all of the miners in the mining camps around that area all through the days of Prohibition as Mm. well. And that's how they made their living, to support their family when my great-grandfather was in and out of work at the mines. And then on one particular event, he taught, you know, they make a batch. They're taking it over to an area called Silver City. Um, Horses get spooked. The wagon turns over and kills him. So my great-grandmother is left to, at this point, she's lost two children, um, is left to support nine children on her own at the age of 30. And so I really delved into that. And again, a lot of those details came from aunts and, and long-distance cousins and whatnot. So you're, uh, you're digging up this history, as it were. Mm-hmm. It, it's fascinating in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Uh, how do you... That probably has an effect of some kind on on you in terms of how you see yourself, how you see yourself fitting into that line of absolutely people. Um, because kind of, and I remember hearing something from one of the gentlemen that he didn't feel connected to his immediate family. And although I do feel very connected to my immediate family, when my father was very young, he joined the military, the Navy, and we he moved away, met my mother, had us kids. So I wasn't brought up in Eureka in this part of the country. So I didn't have a very strong connection with my father's extended family. I didn't know them at all until we moved to Utah when I was a teenager. And so I, all these years, though I knew them as my family, I didn't feel like I was as part of that family as some of my other cousins who had grown up here. So I always kind of felt a little bit like the outsider of this this clan called the Bogdans. And so this also helped me feel 
like I I was part of this really amazing, um, tenacious and stoic group of people that I didn't really feel connected to prior to that. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking about genealogy and family history. It's the second uh, most popular hobby in the United States. Of course, it's big in Utah because of the LDS Church and Ancestry.com. Uh, there was a, re- a recent event in Logan on uh, March 14th, uh, basing their title at least off of uh, a popular television series. Uh, it was called uh, Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and uh, we have a few comments from that uh, event, and we'd love to get your story. Where We've been listening to and we continue to listen to some fascinating family history journeys. We'd love to uh, hear your story, whether you're just starting out or whether you've uh, traced your line back hundreds of generations. Love to hear the story of your family. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at our email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Before we hear another one of these clips, I want to go back to Travis Thurston. Uh, are there any roadblocks you've encountered? Any, um, you know, you've, you've got an interest in this. You did did find some good things, including an autobiography that your uh, grandfather, great grandfather, wrote. Uh, maybe uh, take me through an obstacle. How you how have you overcome that when you when you hit a roadblock? One of the things you can run into uh, when you're doing research is finding conflicting sources, uh, especially when it comes to dates and locations and things like that. So one of the things I really like to do is find uh, census records, birth certificates, even military records that I can use to back up facts and dates um, because there is misinformation all over the place. Mm. Uh, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? You, you just try to find some documentation. The, for me, the easiest way is to find documentation, official documentation um, that can back up those dates. Mm. Um, also, another thing I like to do is, similar to Michelle, is find oral histories, talk to others that were, that were living, that grew up with them, um, that maybe know them a little bit better than, you know, say, their, their children, mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful as well. Yeah. How do you go about that, by the way? I think some people are intimidated by it. You, can, you just take your iPhone, I guess, and, and, uh, and record somebody? Uh, the way my wife and I have done it in the past is we just set up a video camera on a tripod and set it up a little bit away from the subject so they don't feel intimidated, uh, but then just have a conversation with them. You know, ask them a few questions, ask them to share a few stories that they remember, um, and just go from there. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I guess they stop being aware of the camera. And Absolutely. Sometimes yeah. that can be a roadblock, I know. It can, yeah. yeah. There are some people that are very intimidated by being in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, another way we've done it is using a digital voice recorder. So that's a little less intimidating. You can just hold it, you know, up next to them while they're speaking, and it's a little less obtrusive. Yeah. Michelle Bogdan, what, what have you done? How, how have you gone about this? Well, um, I had uh, my first time of doing an oral history again was for um, a class. And so we had to follow all the protocol that you would use through the USU Archives Library, um, collecting an oral history, you know, the release of information, all of that stuff. 
for me, when I interviewed my Aunt Mary, I thought that I had done a fairly good job of explaining what this was about, what this was for, that it was going to be a final project that was actually going to be deposited in the USU archives. And so we were really good to go until I started asking questions. And I kind of started to sense some some reticence in um, sharing certain information. And and I, you know, was trying really, really hard. And this was the first time I had ever done it. Um, Travis, I don't know what your experience was the first time you did yours, but it's a little nerve-wracking. These are people that you know, and you want to respect them, and you want to give them, you know, the utmost respect and honor. And, of course, some of the folks that I, you know, at the time, my Aunt Mary was getting a little older. She she passed away last year. And um, so I'm going through, I'm asking all these questions, and then there's this point where you start to feel like, I think I may have hit a sore spot. And um, at one point, when the first interview that I did with her, and she was living in Tooele, Utah at the time, and I had driven out to Tooele to do this, she just shut me down. And I was not really sure how to handle that. So I came home, and again, I'm now under the deadline of completing a project for a graduate-level course. So that kind of took it to a whole different level and um, came home. And I got a phone call from her about probably about a day later. She said, I don't want you publishing any of this. And I said, um, well, well, why? This is fascinating history, and I think it's important that we share it. She's like, She said, there are just some secrets that should be buried. You should never talk about this. We don't talk about this. And frankly, I'm very surprised that you wanted to do this. And she was upset with me. And she didn't speak to me for a little while. And at the time, I'm going back to Dr. Gant going, eh, not quite sure what to do with this. And so actually, that final project, that paper became about the experience of when it doesn't go smoothly. Um, a little bit later, I, I you know, I conjoled and, you know, threw myself at her feet and apologized and basically told her, if I were to come back out and do this again, what if I put you completely in the driver's seat and you you just said what you feel, felt comfortable saying, would that feel better for you? And she said yes. So I was actually able to go back a couple of weeks later and complete that interview. But instead of me asking the questions, I just turned the interview over to her and just let her talk. Mm. Um, still, that that oral that transcript was never allowed to be published in the USU archives. So that's still something that I have, which is a gift to me. But I will never be able to publish it, and I just out of respect for her and and my family. Right. What was her concern? I think it was, you know, to some extent. And, and particularly in her mind, and to some extent probably still does exist, there is a stigma against mental health issues and particularly suicide. And I think for her, I think it was an issue of this is our family, and we don't want everyone to think, well, the Bogdans just like to bump themselves off. Mm. I mean, that was her word verbatim. Mm. Um, so I can understand that. But for me, what I felt was so important was the stories of – how can a woman who's had 10 children take care of those kids in a time where she barely knew the language? So she did not have, she was a non-native speaker, so she did not have a good grasp on the English language. She was still very, very Slavic. And, you know, there's just some really amazing stories that came from that. And also a lot of the other women in our family, um, my grandmother, some of the things that she endured, um, 
other aunt, great aunts who went on to um, have some pretty tragic circumstances in their lives who still were able to persevere. Of course, several of them also committed suicide. Um, and then again, an understanding of, okay, now that we know what we know in modern time, there's obviously some genetics, there's obviously something going on here, there's a predisposition to this. And so I think it's also important to have that knowledge, not only for your own well-being, for I have a 17-year-old daughter, you know, I want to make sure that we're all aware that, okay, this could be some type of a genetic component. Mm. What do we do to make sure that we all stay healthy? Mm. And I think, uh, and you wrote in our pin inquiry about this, I, th- I think some of the purpose behind your research is to pass this on to your to your mm-hmm. daughter, right? Absolutely, I do think it's very important to understand where you where you come from and and about your family of origin because I believe that even though my seventeen year old does not has never met her grand, great grandmother or her great great grandmother, that stories are imprinted in our DNA. I think stories are things that we carry with us. I think if there's a if there's any kind of a genetic component to the things that I mentioned before, there's also a genetic component to resilience and perseverance and um, tenacity. And yeah, we I can see it. I know exactly where a little bit of that that Yugoslavian temper and stubbornness comes from with me. And I can completely see it with my 17-year-old. And so I think it's valuable. You know, you have children as well, Travis. I think it's valuable to pass those stories on to your children, and yeah. hopefully they will pass them on. Travis, the same, I guess you just have the same impulse. You want, to, you want to, part of the reason you want to pass this on to your children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did my undergrad here at Utah State in history teaching, and I had the opportunity to teach high school history for three years. Um, and my attitude with studying history as well as family history is pretty similar. I think as, as we learn more about where we came from, it teaches us more about who we are. Um, the events and things that our ancestors went through I think are very telling of what kind of people they are. And uh, as Michelle said, I think that's imprinted in us as well. Mm-hmm. I think we carry on those traits. We are talking about family history and genealogy today. It's the second uh, most popular hobby in the United States and uh, big, of course, in Utah because of the LDS Church and Ancestry.com. We'd love to hear your story at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us on email at upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to hear from a man who calls himself Cowboy Ted. Very interesting story. More following the break. What do we mean when we call someone successful? I run, jump, walk, season into the audience 26 and a half miles on average on that day alone. So I do ultra marathons in a weekend physically. Everybody has days where they come to the end of the day. I come to the end of the day bone tired and victorious. I'm Guy Raz. Success as a misnomer. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting the musical comedy The Adams Family, Saturday, March 29th at 2 o'clock p.m. and 8 o'clock p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-2206. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal date, and millet breads.
one of the main reasons we do genealogy is find our roots, kind of what makes us tick. And for me, for example, I feel like I didn't belong to my family, my immediate family. And as we started digging back through some of the generations, not very far back, we started finding people that were just like me, just like the same things and it kind of fit. And so it kind of let us know that the same genes, whatever you want to call it, jump a generation or two sometimes. And so, you know, I'm always the kind of guy that loves to get on my horse and say, okay, I'm gonna go see what's over that next mountain range over there and come to find out just a couple of generations back, they were always right on the edge of the frontier, Florida and new frontiers in Texas and Oklahoma. They went back into the Indian territories and explored and opening up of new areas, you know. That was Jalee and Brent Greer. Um, and they uh, are from, uh, they were recorded down at the Logan Tabernacle a couple of weeks ago in the Who Do You Think You Are event there. Uh, very interesting. I think it was Brent that uh, said this. What if you comment on this, uh, Michelle Bogdan? He said he didn't, didn't feel, I, I'm not sure the phrase he used, but he didn't feel part of his family. Mm-hmm. And then he got researching and he found out the similar traits, similar Absolutely. things. He felt more connected. Yeah. And that you had a similar experience. I, I guess, did. So. Um, like I said, um, we had moved away from our um, the, the Bogdan family who stayed in the Tooele County area and Eureka area. Um, we had my dad was stationed in several different places in the south and the east, and so I did not even know who my cousins were. I had heard names of my aunts, but I didn't know any of them until we actually moved back and moved to Utah in the um, in the eighties, and so I had no connection with my extended family, and I knew nothing of them until my father's passing. Really, in terms of great aunts and great grandparents and so forth on both sides of the family because they both both sides came from one one family came from Sarajevo and the other family came from an area called Sumbrak to specifically come to work in the mines of the Tenig Mining District. Mm, interesting. Travis, I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see uh, for myself. Um, uh, I started as a as a school teacher. And in school, they always ask you, you know, how many of you have parents or, or grandparents that were teachers as well? And I never raised my hand because I didn't. Uh, but as I've done some family history research, I found out that I've had several great grandparents that were school teachers. And even further back, uh, I had school teachers in my line. Uh, so what he said about traits sometimes skipping generations, I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about myself, I, I, you know, knowing that I have Welch ancestry, I guess it maybe explains in part why I like singing. I like singing in choirs. Mm-hmm. You know, every town in Wales has a choir, usually a men's choir, and yeah. uh, so you can, you can make those connections. Let's uh, hear this piece, about eight minutes long. This is a uh, conversation I recorded uh, with Ted Hallisey on Friday. He responded to this uh, inquiry put out th- with the Public Insight Network on family history. Wasn't able to join us this morning. Uh, he lives in Bountiful, and uh, he, he is an educator, and he does outreach uh, for kids' fitness. And, in fact, his website is cowboyted.com. So this will set up a very interesting development that he found in his family history. Uh, here's my uh, conversation with Cowboy Ted. So let me just start here. What, what's your background? Where would you grow up? I grew up in California and then came to Utah for a job and then uh, joined the church and started doing some genealogy from the church. Definitely. So, and you're talking about the LDS Church? Yes. So, 
must have been especially interesting for you. To tell me what you found out when you were uh, researching your family history. Well, I found out that we kind of came to a, a black hole in our family search because we traced it back to some Native American background and found that a lot of the tribes don't submit to public records and neither does the census, so we're kind of at an impasse. But in asking family, they confirmed that back in the 30s and 40s, it wasn't popular to uh, have a tribal affiliation card for my grandmother and and great-grandparents, so they didn't mention it much, and they were in Quebec, Canada. Interesting. Uh, so they're, they're Indian. Do you, do you suspect what tribe? Do you, do you have any idea? Yeah, they finally confirmed it, but nobody talked about it except for, you know, kind of jokingly. It's like, yeah, you're not a cowboy, you're an Indian. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, but didn't follow through with it because their mother, my mom and my aunt's mother, didn't talk about it much because she was not happy about it. It, w- it wasn't a popular thing to have mixed blood at those days. So we kind of, uh, you know, skirted over the subject, and now we've identified it that it was the Algonquin tribe, which was actually part of the tribe that was around New York in the 1830s and, and, and could have even been around uh, early pioneer days, Joseph Smith days, and the early days of the church. So it was kind of interesting on that side. And then digging a little deeper, my mom finally let out on some stuff that my dad uh, was raised in Arizona and didn't know his father, so she suspects that there's a possibility that he could be Native American with one of the Arizona tribes and not known it. Now, is is research... In this area, Indian tribes, is that more difficult? Are you, are you encountering some difficulties there? Yeah, we're finding a lot of difficulties because the tribes didn't have to submit to birth certificates and public records. And so they're not part of the, the public records or the census that are traditionally the resources for the Ancestry.com and FamilySearch.com and those different uh, genealogy sites. So we've kind of gotten an impasse, and then I have the additional challenge that my grandmother was born in French-speaking Canada, or her parents were. So everything that they do have is in French, so we're having to get somebody to translate the records that we do have. And then when we got past those, we found the spot where it went to the Native American tribe. And then in talking to some genealogy experts, we're finding out that, yes, they don't have to submit to public records. So their birth certificates and tribal records are kept separate, and you kind of have to have a tribal affiliation number to be able to get access to those. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting uh, dilemma we're in at this point. Now, finding this out, this, this surprise, in essence, you, you might have uh, Indian ancestry on both sides. Uh, on, so on one level, just sort of the, you know, as you grow up, the stereotype, cowboys and Indians, you're, you're a cowboy who... Who found out to, he's an Indian? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you feel about that? What do you What are your thoughts there? I actually feel good about it because it's caused me to, or, or encouraged me to do more research and finding out that not necessarily was there so much conflict between the cowboys and Indians as much as the Eastern people and the European settlers that came over and had the issues with the Indians. Obviously. We've created this Western lifestyle that the Cowboys and Indians were fighting all the time. 
And in some of the history that I'm looking back, it sounds like the Indians and several of the cowboys and the Mormon pioneers had an amiable relationship, but it wasn't made that way in Hollywood. So it's kind of brought me full circle in thinking that, yeah, I was raised in this rural area. I love the outdoors and and the spirit of animals and nature, and it really is tying in with the native spirit and some of the teachings that I'm finding now and going back from some of these tribes, especially the Algonquin tribe that I was part of. So you're interested in learning more about uh, Native American culture and beliefs and and such? Oh, definitely. For me, it just kind of gave my life more meaning, because it's like I always felt like I didn't fit in spiritually or even socially in certain areas, because I, I wasn't into the the monetary system and the different things that we've adopted through the the European influence that came over to the United States. And then I've actually, through my foundation, I've done some visits uh, to do tobacco education for tribes, and some of the tribal elders have said, you don't seem white. And it's like, oh, okay. But I didn't know this background at the time, and now it makes more sense eight or ten years later, when they're saying, you seem more native than non-native, and we feel a connection with you, so we'll let you talk to our youth about tobacco. And it was just, uh, for lack of a better word, it was kind of a spiritual connection that they understood. At one point, when I was in a job, a Native American flute maker came up and says, I can see into your soul, and you've got a true spirit, and I want to give you this flute and that was it. He didn't want any money. He didn't want anything. He just walked up to me out of the blue and, and said that he felt that he connected with my soul and passed this on. And that was before I uh, got active with the Mormon Church. And now it's kind of kind of making sense about the Lamanites and the, the seed of the remnant. And, and I'm really interested in finding out more about all of that part of it. But the Book of Mormon even made more sense to me when I read in Third Nephi about Christ coming and talking to what would probably be Native Americans. So this does tie into your religious beliefs, and and uh, I guess you could maybe you could uh, clarify that uh, Mormons believe that uh, uh, the Book of Mormon is about uh, ancient inhabitants of America, and and Indians are descendants uh, of those people. Right, they're believing that uh, people split off. Nephi and Lehi came to America and then created a society of people that would then, after generations, be known as the Native Americans, and ties into the teachings of the Book of Mormon. And like I said, for me, it just made a lot of sense as these things came forward. It's like things I didn't really know or feel spiritually now kind of made more sense. And then when I heard about the Book of Mormon and the seed of the remnant and, and some of these different things of the native spirit and the absence of material things and everybody kind of being a sense of communal sharing and different things, it, it kind of really spoke to me from a spiritual as well as a religious uh, aspect. Mm. So uh, finally, what are your goals going forward? What, what are you going to be doing in family My history? My goals now are to try and bridge that gap from the tribal affiliation where I can't seem to get the records and see if I can make contact with the actual tribes, uh, talk about the people that I do have and see if they are in their tribal records 
and see if I can kind of fill in that gap in my family tree so that I can go back even further and hopefully be amiable with the tribe because that's going to be a good portion of how I can get my genealogy that I've kind of been blocked on. Well, very interesting story. We've been talking with uh, Ted Hallisey. Uh, he goes by the name uh, Cowboy Ted, and uh, he responded to our Public Insight uh, Network uh, inquiry. Uh, good luck to you with your with your future endeavors in family history and, and with your work as, as Cowboy Ted. Uh, fitness for Kids, uh, uh, a worthwhile endeavor. Well, thank you. So that's Cowboy Ted. Ted Hallisey uh, lives in Bountiful, and uh, the website, if you're interested in, in his, his work with kids, is uh, cowboyted.com. What are we running out of time? We want to bring in a very interesting story from my producer, uh, Bennett Purser. You hear him during the breaks, and you hear him credited at the end of the program. But uh, Bennett has an interesting story. So tell us, Bennett, you're a USU student. Yes, I'm a USU student um, studying journalism. But much like our guest today, I started doing my family history because I was inspired by oral history. And this happened with my grandfather. Um, when we took a fishing trip to Alaska this past summer. And then again, me and my mother recorded him on Thanksgiving. But he passed away on New Year's Eve of 2013. And um, he, as a Japanese-American, a Nisei, second generation, was very prone to not discuss his heritage or his parents' journey to America. So when he passed away, Going through his belongings is when we discovered all of these stories and all of these artifacts from my family's history that he never shared with us. He would tell us about his, his life as a Japanese-American, but not as a Japanese man. Mm. So everything from um, passports made of rice paper issued in the 20s of my great-grandparents coming to America... Japanese passports, to identification cards that were issued in 1942, right after the attack of Pearl Harbor, where the Japanese people, they had to carry these ID cards, and they had a list of rules of things they could not do. They couldn't stray, you know, how many hundred yards away from their property or from their workplace. And in these pictures on their ID cards, they just, like, terrified my great-grandparents. So it's been fascinating because my family never thought we would hear these stories. Mm. And y- your family ended up in, in this area after they were in internment camps, right? Yes. So, yeah. In Topaz, Utah. Yeah. So they ended up uh, up in northern Utah. And in fact, there's there's some history there that I didn't even know until you were telling me about it. Uh, there's, there's Japanese community. Yes, in, in Box Elder County, yeah. a Japanese community, small Japanese community where um, it was around 1945, all the Japanese people moved there after they were released from Topaz. So, and if you go to their cemetery, a lot of tombstones are in Japanese writing. Mm-hmm. So you are half Japanese? So I'm yeah. a quarter Japanese. A quarter Japanese. I'm a Yonsei. Yonsei. Fourth generation. Okay. And so going through the, the these artifacts from your grandfather and, and learning things that he never was was comfortable talking about, what does that what does that do to you? What is that how does that change your view of yourself? Well, similar to um, the rest of our guests today, my grandfather was the only male relative I had that looked like me. Mm. Um, I'm not close with any other men of Japanese descent on on my mother's side of my family. So, but being really close to my grandfather was important because, you know, I don't look like my dad. I don't look like my other uncles or my cousins, but I looked like my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So I always had a, 
a bond with him just based off that. And also my grandfather was single much of his life after he divorced my grand, my grandmother in his 20s. So he was very much a part of my household. Mm-hmm. He, he was always at our house growing up for, you know, every weekend. Mm-hmm. Had a room in our home. So finding all these things, finding um, his stories or his family's stories and finding out that, you know, I look like his father. And it just really connects me to perhaps this heritage that I never knew anything about for for the most part. Mm-hmm. But now it's a sort of an awakening. Yeah, interesting. So I'm sure you'll be continuing with uh, with this, this search. Yes, yeah. most definitely. Thank you. Bennett Purser is uh, my producer. I appreciate his good work and a very fascinating story. We just have a minute left, uh, maybe just 30 seconds each. Uh, Travis, what's, what are your goals going forward with Family History? What are you going to be doing? We really want to continue, my wife and I, with uh, researching her family. There's a lot left uncovered. We, we uncovered some pictures from World War I of one of her great-grandfathers, um, and we'd like to do more research there. Um, and it's just really interesting to see what events and what things they've gone through. Mm. And Michelle Bogdan, what, uh, what are you going to be doing? Um, actually, I think what, where, what I see my role moving forward is because I've done so much research, I'm finding long kind of, you know down the road like great great my great aunts great great granddaughters and, and cousins are kind of coming out of the woodwork asking me questions um, because they google my name and they'll see mm-hmm. Bogdan's you know connected to something so I've actually had um, a couple of emails from folks going hey are you the great granddaughter of Annie Dracolich Bogdanovich because they're on ancestry.com mm-hmm. or they're doing their own family history and they see me as a source so I'd like to be able to move forward and become more of a source as the the family historians in my family are getting older one has passed away already so there's one left so I've interviewed her um, her name is Mary Ellen Bates so I've interviewed her once or twice I'm going to try to interview her a few more times and collect more information and then just keep it all safe and stored mm. well good luck to you Thank you. Uh, Travis Thurston, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. Glad to be on the program. Michelle Bogdan, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, Bennett, thank you for for coming on. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, we're going to be talking to the writer of the uh, cover article for the upcoming National Geographic magazine, Can Coal Be Clean Enough? We'll talk about coal tomorrow on the program. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Holly Strand from the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. It's springtime, bringing warm, light-filled days, colorful blooms, chirping birds, and bloodthirsty ticks. Ticks are arachnids, like spiders and scorpions. They vary in size, shape, and color but they all have barbed feeding tubes which they use to excavate a hole in your skin so they can bury their heads and suck your blood. Their accordion-like bodies expand as they sip and sip and sip. Most ticks go through three life stages after hatching, six-legged larva, eight-legged nymph, and then adult. The ticks need a single blood meal during each of these life stages. To get this meal, ticks wait for their victims, usually a mammal, using a behavior called questing. Questing ticks crawl up the stems of grass or perch on the edges of leaves and extend their front legs like a toddler, signaling he wants to be picked up.
The presence of carbon dioxide or heat or movement let the tick know that a meal may be passing soon, and the tick gets ready. When a passing animal brushes the tick's extended legs, the tick simply climbs on board. It doesn't jump, it just feels and attaches. Some ticks will bore in quickly, and others will cruise around looking for a spot where the skin is thin and blood vessels closer to the surface. This head burying and blood sucking behavior alone gives ticks an unsavory reputation. But of course, ticks are also dangerous in that they transmit disease through their saliva. The Rocky Mountain wood tick and American dog tick have been found to feed on Utahns. Both can transmit Rocky Mountain spotted fever and tularemia, also known as rabbit fever. The western black legged tick is another Utah native. It's a vector for Lyme disease. According to the Utah Department of Public Health, it does appear that a small number of individuals may have acquired the disease in Utah. Human transmission from this tick has definitely occurred in California. Ticks can be found in grasses, shrublands, forests, basically everywhere. Ticks in hotter, arid parts of the state reach peak activity in April and May, while ticks at higher elevations are active from May through July. Ticks in all geographic areas are active in the fall as temperatures cool and moisture increases. Now that I've frightened you, know that the chance of getting a tick-borne disease in Utah is still small. In spite of its name, the vast majority of Rocky Mountain spotted fever cases are reported in eastern and southern states. And in any given year, there will probably be less than 10 cases of each disease mentioned. And they are all treatable if caught early. So don't let fear of ticks keep you inside. Just remember that they are out there and check for them when you've been brushing up against vegetation. To remove a tick, do not burn it with a hot match or smother it in petroleum jelly. These methods can make a tick burrow deeper before dying. Instead, remove the tick as quickly as possible using the fine-tipped tweezers that you carry in your first aid kit. For more information, including tips on tick avoidance and removal, go to www.wildaboututah.org. For Wild About Utah, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.